Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host today. And today on the podcast, we are going to talk about economic and financial market volatility, about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and about what the Fed properly should do about it and what they uh, are going to do about it, about what it means for inflation and uh, and what you should do about it. Uh, but before I get to that, and it's a packed episode today, let me tell you, we you know it's uh, not every day that we get to talk about a potential banking crisis. Um, but before I get to that, let me remind you that uh, this episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored, and it's sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a manager of alternative ETFs solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. This includes income solutions like SVAL, yield curve plays like TUA, and 60-40 diversifiers such as CTA. If you are an individual investor or a registered investment advisor, you will likely find that something they've done addresses a particular problem that you didn't know was solvable. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And now, on with the show. I entitled this episode, uh, You Fell Victim to One of the Classic Blunders, in homage to the movie The Princess Bride. Truly a great, a great movie. Um, and in The Princess Bride, Vicini says... At one point, ha ha, you fool, you fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well known is this, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. And, and of course, it, it turns out that, that uh, the guy, the Wesley did not, in fact, fall victim to that classic blunder, but... Anyway, the point is that there there is a list of classic blunders thanks to the Princess Bride, and uh, and I'm adding another one to this list, and that is never sell inflation when a banking crisis unleashes massive liquidity. Okay, never sell inflation when a banking crisis unleashes massive liquidity, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but first, let's start at the beginning, uh, and that is that volatility is a feature. It's not a bug. Volatility is a good thing if you're an investor. Now, it isn't in sort of the quantitative sense. Uh, we want to get the maximum return for a given level of volatility. So volatility is something that we penalize a portfolio for. Um, and so... I don't mean it in that sense. I don't mean that we should that you should go out and seek volatility. What I mean is that volatility in in, in an economic sense, volatility in markets gives us opportunities to buy inexpensive things. Volatility in the economy uh, reveals the uh, reveals the cracks and lets us weed out the bad things. Warren Buffett famously said. Uh, and this actually was uh, quoted back to me this week on the insuranceaum.com podcast that I was a guest on. But Warren Buffett 
Warren Buffett famously said, it is only when the tide goes out that you learn who has been swimming naked. Um, and that is the positive function of volatility. It exposes poorly run businesses. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, in 2001, 2002, in the, uh, the post-tech uh, crisis, tech bubble crisis, um, we started to find businesses that had done some financial shenanigans on their in their financial statements. And we wouldn't have found that out if we hadn't had the volatility, which made, you know, the things that they were doing become more and more suspect and more and more obvious that they were doing something uh, wrong. Um, actually, there is a great book, and that this does go, this is maybe showing my age, but also goes back to the early 2000s. And that book is called Financial Shenanigans, uh, by Henry Schillett, S-C-H-I-L-I-T. And I've got the second edition uh, from around the early 2000s, but um, it's probably a later edition now. But but Schillett goes through a bunch of sort of the classic um, uh, the classic shenanigans. Um, and, uh, you know, that when the economy was, you know, churning along and, and, and you know, you know, nice and stable, uh, these companies could sort of hide their shenanigans. But when cracks started to develop, it became harder and harder for these shenanigans to be uh, uh, to be to be hidden. And so, uh, again, volatility there was sort of you know a, a feature in that it helped to reveal which of these folks had been had been uh, swimming naked. So, so volatility is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, it helps us identify which are the well-run businesses. So if you've got a diner, say, if you're running a diner and you have the same 20 customers every day and they order the same thing every day, then you don't have to be a particularly well-run diner. Um, you know, that's a very easy business. But if you've got a wildly varying number of customers and they order a wide variety of things, then it's much harder to run a diner. You've got, you know, how do you staff it? What uh, raw materials do you bring in? Um, what sorts of foods? You know, because you don't want to have too much waste and so on. And that gets really, really hard to do. So, you know, if you are a poorly run business and you took advantage of that of that uh, stability of having 20 customers to run your business in sort of a dumb way, then once you have that volatility, you know, the, the diner that's poorly run goes out of business. The one that's well run is able to survive the volatility because, because they, they planned for it. Now, forget dining for a second. Let's go back to banking because all of this is about, is about banking. And, and we should talk about the ways, because it's really fascinating, we should talk about the ways that banking has changed over time. Um, and, and this also will probably, you know, there are probably a lot of people who are listening to this now who are not aware that in the old days, there was a ceiling on what banks were allowed to pay on, on savings accounts. I remember when I was a kid getting a you know, passbook savings and it had, you know, it could only pay five and a quarter percent. Um, and, but most people you know, don't remember that kind of, because that was from the early, the 70s and the early 80s. Um, more than half of all Americans have been born since then. So um, there's a decent chance that 
that someone listening to this doesn't does not does not remember that. Um, but but the reason that there had been ceilings on on savings accounts was because of a law passed by Congress in the wake of the bank failures in the Great Depression. So during the Great Depression, some 9,000 banks failed, about 30% of all the, the banks out there. And, um, and uh, Congress decided that part of the reason that this had happened um, was because banks were competing on deposit rates. If banks, if you stop banks from competing on deposit rates, the theory went, then they won't be forced to invest in high-risk things in their portfolio that can then come back to bite them. Sound familiar? Now, that wasn't a new idea in 19... The funny part, this is the funny part. That wasn't a new idea even back in the 1930s. Uh, I have a quote here from 1858, the New York clearinghouse to which the banks belonged, proposed to regulate members' deposit rates. And and one of the things that it said in the proposal was, a bank, having committed this first error of paying interest on its deposits, is therefore compelled by the necessities of its position to take the second false step and expand its operations beyond all prudent bounds. You could have written that three weeks ago <laughs> about Silicon Valley Bank, right? You know, very... Uh, uh, so a very common understanding was that when you have, uh, you know, when you you create the 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 cost of the liability because the deposit to a bank is a liability, when you create volatility to the cost of that, then then you create a a and and you give banks an incentive to go compete on that side, then one of the ways to offer a high deposit rate is to do something very risky. Uh, on the on the other end of things, so um, so the clearinghouse had had proposed this in 1858, and they deposit ceilings kind of you know were tried a, a number of times and never really stuck until the Banking Act of 1933, when Congress prohibited paying interest on checking accounts and let and and set the Fed to determine what the caps on savings deposits should be. And so between 1933 and 1980, there were essentially no bank failures. You know, a handful every, you know, every year, you know, two, three, whatever, but, but essentially not. So whether this was causal or not, it's clear that at that point, the, you know, after the Great Depression, the, uh, the, the problem with failing banks kind of went away. <clears throat> But by the, late 19, by the late 1970s, the Fed was having trouble keeping up with moving the deposit uh, rates and, and consumer deposits were sort of leaving the banking system for competing investments elsewhere, uh, going to, to you know, different, less secure banks and so on and so forth, um, which, uh, which weakened banks and there was agitation to deregulate banks. Now, I remember being told early on, very, when I was much younger, that banking – was a stolid business. It was a 10-12-2 business. You lend it, you you borrow at 10, you lend it 12, and you're on the golf course by two. And um, and that was it. That was, you made your little interest rate spread and um, you know, what business could be easier. Um, now, that only works 
if people are giving you money at 10% uh, rather than putting it in T-bills at 20%, <laughs> which, which they were. So deregulation was um, uh, argued for, and it changed banking from sort of that sleepy kind of business, starting with uh, allowing banks to uh, offer now accounts, which was interest-bearing checking, and then gradually phasing out deposit rate ceilings altogether by 1986. As I said, I've got links in the uh, in the uh, liner in the liner notes in the uh, uh, episode notes uh, to a couple of these articles that, that are pretty interesting. Um, once these caps were removed <laughs> between 1981 and 1993, there were 2,328 bank failures, including you know, the famous savings and loan debacle in the in the late 80s. Because exactly what happened was that. You know, uh, banks started investing in risky stuff so that they could attract more deposits and grow the bank. So you grow the bank by offering a really good deposit rate, bring in some more deposits. How do you offer the high deposit rate? By doing risky stuff. And so, you know, banks did risky stuff and then a bunch of them ended up going under. Um, after the savings and loan debacle, after 1993, interest rates were low and stable for a very long period of time. And bank failures kind of, you know, went down after the savings and loan crisis. Um, but even that stability kind of persuaded banks that they could do riskier things. Um, and, and in many cases, on, on the larger side of banks. And, and of course, we know that in the, the global financial crisis, 2008-9-10, um, you know, we had 527 failures because of banks having risky risky portfolio behavior, including things like CDO squared and really complex stuff. Um, and, and by the way, one way in which this particular crisis is different is that back then the portfolio problems were caused by really, real, really risky and complex securities, really the focus here on the complexity, whereas what's happened to Silicon Valley Bank had to do with treasuries, very, very simple securities, and, and should have been much easier to to. To catch, but I'll get to back to that in a second. But does the fact that we have had these series, these periodic banking crises, mean that volatility is a bug? Not at all. Uh, there are, you know, a few very well managed institutions, and the ones that are not well managed, the ones that are well managed, live to to bank another day, and the ones that are not well managed are the ones that get pulled underneath the waves. And the Federal Reserve is supposed to examine these these banks and close them before they really, you know, get into too much trouble. And they have a checkered history of <laughs> being able to do that. Um, but um, uh, let's consider Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but but before we do that, let's take a step back further and and make sure that we we know take note of one important part, part of the crisis. And that is that the genesis of the banking crisis we're currently having, and I don't know how, if it's really a crisis, but whatever, but let's call it a banking crisis because everybody is. The genesis of the crisis was in the COVID monetary policy response because when the Treasury dropped checks into everybody's accounts and the Fed printed the money to do it, they created a huge tsunami of deposits. 
So remember, what's, what caused the problem with Silicon Valley Bank was that they had all these deposits and then, which are liabilities to the bank, and so they had to hold assets against it, and they hold, held these long-term securities, and then when the, the deposits left, they had to sell securities that had lost money, and suddenly they're insolvent. The, the huge tsunami of deposits that went to every bank was caused by COVID policy response. The basic function of a bank, after all, especially a community bank, is to take in deposits and then to make loans. The loans are the asset of the bank and the deposits are the liability of the bank. But with, so, with such a tsunami of deposits, banks couldn't possibly lend money quickly enough, right? So you've got, you suddenly have these massive liabilities, all these deposits, and, and, and so what do you have on the asset side? Ordinarily, you'd go make loans, but they couldn't make loans quickly enough, so they had to buy treasuries. And they bought treasuries because treasuries get great capital treatment. And so they were encouraged to go buy treasuries. And by the way, that turned out to be pretty well because as it happened, there was, you know, the treasury needed to sell a whole bunch of treasuries right then. Guess who bought them? The banks, correct. So, but but notice and remember, the banks are forced in aggregate to hold deposits. Okay, any given bank doesn't necessarily have to hold deposits, but in aggregate, they have to. Deposits are created by the actions of, in in the example I just gave, the the Fed and the Treasury. Deposits can go from one bank to another. I can take my account and move it to another bank. Um, Or I can, you know, I can take my deposit out and I can buy a Treasury with it. Well, what happens then? Well, whoever I bought that bond from now has cash, which ends up sitting in a, in a deposit in a bank. And so we can't, in aggregate, you know, the banking system can't really do a whole lot about deposits, and they can't really go away suddenly. They can go away from any given bank, but they can't go away from the entire system very suddenly. And when the Fed shrinks its balance sheet enough, eventually they will, but they can't. Uh, in the meantime. And that's one of the reasons that deposits pay no interest because banks don't need to compete for them. They have more deposits than they need normally. (laughs) Um, So anyway, the Federal Reserve essentially controls the quantity of of deposits. So if banks can't lend fast enough, then they have to buy securities. They can hold T-bills, Fed funds, notes, but they have to hold something, you know, if they're not making loans. And, and like I said, good thing because the Treasury was you know, had lots of, of um, uh, notes and bonds they wanted to sell. Now, here's where the management of the institution matters. A well-run bank will try to hold short-term securities because the deposits are fairly short-term. Um, or they might decide that they can opportunistically hold longer-term securities that then they hedge so that they don't have this exposure to interest rates changing. They don't want to have, in a well-managed institution, you don't want to have the asset side of your balance sheet whipping around wildly while the liability side is stable. If it whips in a positive direction, then you've, you have great earnings. If it whips in a negative direction, then you're insolvent and the FDIC takes you over. So this is not a good thing. Um, so if a, in a well-managed institution, you try to get the duration mismatch down low, and you do a good, try to do a good job underwriting the loans that you do make so that you can make the interest rate spread and it's a 10, 12, 2 business again. Um, but 
gosh, it's sure tempting to try to make a little more spread, right? You know, I if I buy a two-year note, then I have this little bit of spread over the deposit. Boy, if I buy a 10-year note, then I have this much a, you know, greater spread. And what could possibly go wrong? Okay, that's where you get the difference between well-run banks and poorly run banks, not to mention poorly examined banks like SVB et al. So the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked. It's not a bug, it's a feature of volatility. We wouldn't have known that SVB was so poorly run if this had not happened. And so if you try to prevent that volatility, then that just keeps the dead wood accumulating in the forest and eventually the ultimate wildfire is so much worse. So it's much better to clear it out now and and preferably in little amounts uh, rather than all at once. Even better would have been if, if the examiners had noticed this problem six months ago. And by the way, it should have been caught six months ago because anybody with a, a calculator and a shred of common sense and ask, asking the right two questions would notice that there's a big duration mismatch and would understand what that means for the risk of the institution. But that ship has sailed, watch water under the bridge, and we'll let it go. But we really do have to demand something about uh, from our bank examiners that they actually examine banks. <clears throat> so all that water under the bridge, what should the Fed do now? And, and, and here I have to say, I think the Fed is doing a pretty decent job um, other than the examining, you know, the, the primary function of the Federal Reserve. The primary function is to examine and, uh, the banking system. <laughs> and they didn't do a good job of that. In, in this episode, they're, they're probably doing approximately the, the right thing. So here's how this goes. First of all, the big risk is not that a well-managed bank has deposit flight, right? So let's recognize that. If a well-managed bank that has not this big duration mismatch, they don't have it. If a well-managed bank has deposits leave, they just sell the securities and shrink the overall size of the institution, some liabilities left to sell some assets, no problem. That's not a big deal. The, the big risk um, is that there are, you know, is, is if there are many more poorly managed banks who are running this big duration mismatch and not hedging that duration mismatch. And there definitely are more than just the handful that have gone under. So the first thing the Fed needs to do and has done is to buy time. And what they've done is to essentially, by opening the the uh, uh, discount window, they've they, they're going to lend unlimited money against high quality collateral, which is a reasonable function of a central bank, um, and it's what the Fed is doing. And so, no deposit flight should should bury even a poorly run bank. Um, two. A poorly run bank, however, still has an issue because, <laughs> because when deposits leave, eventually, you know, they can't sell these deeply depreciated securities because it'll make them solvent. Um, and so the FDIC will at, at some point have to step in and take over more such banks, but they'll be able to do it on their own time uh, and not be forced to do it by the sudden route write downs as happened in Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. None of this, though, should change monetary policy. Okay, in terms of interest rate policy or, or quantitative tightening. Well, the quantitative tightening is over. We By opening the, the uh, discount window that wide and, and, and lending like that, uh, the, balance, the Fed's balance sheet has, has exploded again. But they shouldn't 
change what they're planning to do on interest rates. Um, the Fed could tomorrow make the problem go away by easing 300 basis points. And that would save both the good and bad banks. You know, whoever, all their securities portfolios would have massive rallies. And then it doesn't matter if deposits leave because now they're sitting on windfall gains and they'll be fine. Of course, it would blow up somebody else. <laughs> some other some other industry or institution, you know, pension fund or whatever. But the Fed could, if they wanted to, dramatically lower rates and, and save a bunch of banks. Um, but they shouldn't. They should stay on their course. And I expect that tomorrow they're going to tighten 40, uh, 25 basis points, um, which will get Fed funds to 5%, and then they'll probably stop. And that's what I've been saying for a long time. It's not clear, well, no, it's pretty clear that raising interest rates hasn't done anything to quell inflation. And just like cutting interest rates didn't do anything to provoke inflation. So it's not clear that interest rates have, particularly in the short run, it's not clear that interest rates do a whole lot for inflation one way or another anyway. So the Fed should, you know, proceed on its pace, do 25 basis points, and then stop and take a look around and assess. Not just the banking system. They should assess the economy. They should assess inflation and figure out what to do. And so that's what I think they'll do tomorrow. Now, what does this mean for inflation, this whole episode? And this is where we get back to the classic blunder. The classic blunder here is to think that this is a banking crisis, and so inflation will collapse, just like it did in 2008 to 2010. Except inflation didn't collapse between 2008 and 2010. Um, what collapsed were energy prices. Headline inflation uh, went into deflation in, uh, in, uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Uh, but that was because we had a recession caused by the crisis. Um, and, and core inflation went down because housing prices collapsed. But housing prices collapsing were arguably a a cause of the global financial crisis, not an effect. So if we take out housing prices, core inflation, um, and by the way, housing prices had been in a bubble, and that's why they, they collapsed. Core inflation X housing was 2% in January of 2008, before the crisis really got underway. It was 2.1% in mid-2009, after Lehman had failed, after you know, all these banks have been forced into the arms of other banks um, uh, after, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all that disaster. It was core inflation X housing was 2% in mid-2010. So between beginning of 2008 and mid-2010, core inflation outside of housing didn't do anything. <laughs> now, it did. By the end of 2010, it got all the way down to 1.1%, but then by the end of 2011, it's 2.5% again. So inflation did not plunge, and so everybody has this false memory of how a banking crisis is going to cause inflation to collapse. But unless it causes housing prices to collapse, there's no real sign of that, um, or unless this really does cause a massive recession, and so energy prices collapse, in which case headline will go down, Core inflation is around five or six, and it's going to probably stay around four or five. It's not going to go anywhere just because of this. The Fed had been doing some modest quantitative tightening, you know, 
like I said, uh, not much, but some, and it's all gone. Money supply growth is going to go back up again. Um, some people were thinking that money supply growth, which has been flat to down, is actually going to get more negative because banks won't lend. But of course, the well-run banks will lend. There's no problem if you're at a well-run bank. And there's plenty of deposits. And so that will be no problem. Businesses that businesses and people who need lending, who need loans, will be able to get loans, unlike in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. This is not a broad banking crisis. It's a crisis among crappy banks. Um, and then velocity, as we know, is already snapping back. So, so inflation is not going to, to, to collapse here. Um, arguably, it could go higher depending on how big the monetary policy response ends up being from the Fed and how much liquidity they squirt back into the system, um, how quickly. What should you do to defend your money? Well, look, first, don't get sucked into the stock market because this is another article of faith is that there's a tide of liquidity and it's good for stocks. Um, and it's true that more liquidity is good for stocks. But first of all, it's not clear if this is a tide or a wave <laughs> of liquidity. If it's a wave of liquidity that goes in and comes back out, then that same thing will happen to stocks. Um, uh, and there are lots of other problems in equity, notably earnings and valuations. And so, uh, you know, the Fed being done with tightening and, and squirting liquidity into the system makes me a little bit happier about, about equities, but not very much, not at the current levels of valuation. And if you have to do, if you have to own equities, it's better to do it with options because implied volatility in options land is surprisingly still quite low. It spiked up briefly, but now it's, it's the VIX is back to 21 or something like that, which isn't rock bottom cheap, but it isn't, isn't that bad. Um, uh, longer term bonds, even if the Fed is just about done tightening, aren't a great bargain, especially if the banking system is going to have to start selling them. <laughs> Um, and inflation isn't going to decline very much, and so owning longer-term bond, fixed-rate bonds is just not a not a, a a move that the sharps are going to make. Inflation-linked bonds are okay. One point three percent real yield is is fine. It's not not very exciting. Uh, I continue to love I bonds, uh, I series savings bonds, and short-term nominal securities uh, aren't awful. I still like collateralized co commodity indices um, and ETFs based on collateralized com commodity indices. Um, uh, I don't want to name any of them and make it sound like it's a recommendation, but um, so this is not a recommendation. But but PDBC, for example, is a um, is is one uh, collateralized commodity index ETF, and there are others. You know, USCI, lots of different others. Um, but but I like that as a general class. And and look, you can do worse than short-term money market funds and ETFs, but I wouldn't hold deposits because deposits still don't pay very much, and um, uh, and if you have more than two hundred fifty thousand, you're still at risk today. So that's what I would do. Hey, that's all for today's podcast. Um, you can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com and or some. And or subscribe to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. Visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge or if you want to know something a little more specific about what you should do uh, to defend your money. And that's the most important part is defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know about it.